0: On Sunday, May 7, 1933, an arsonist set fire to a theater in downtown Ellsworth. And the ensuing blaze cut a path of destruction through the night and into early the next morning. Multiple fire companies from surrounding towns and the whole whole-hearted effort of the citizenry contributed along with the dying down of the wind to the eventual tamping down of the flames. When it was over, 130 structures, homes, businesses, and churches, including the original building of the United Baptist Church, on this lot, had been destroyed. In one dreadful night, the center of the city of Elfworth had virtually disappeared. We're going to be looking at a proverb this morning, Proverbs 29. Verse eight. We're actually going to be looking at just half of that. So Proverbs twenty nine eight a. If you want to follow along in your scripture, it tells us that scoffers set a city aflame. Father, as we come now to your word, we do so in humility, acknowledging our need of it, opening our hearts to it, eager to hear and know what you will teach us through it. We sit at your feet now, Lord, as we open your word. And We ask you by the presence and power of your Holy Spirit to minister to our hearts and our minds. Inform us, enlighten us, change us for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we look at Proverbs 29.8 this morning. We note that the language is actually it's not really literal. This is not, first and foremost, a proverb about arson. It is a description of two approaches to potential conflict. One type of person fans the coals of anger into fire, and another seeks to extinguish them. This morning, we're just going to take a look at that first type of person who fans the flame, and that would be the scoffer. Now, scoffer doesn't sound like a very foreboding term, does it? It doesn't sound like a big threat. That's a scoffer. Your mother probably never said to you as you were leaving the house, look out for the scoffers. Um, and so we might be wondering, what's the big deal here? Why does this matter? Our modern sensibility is missing something. The scoffer here is not the person in your life who always wants to take the devil's advocate position. You probably have someone or someone's like that or always taking up a contrarian The scoffer here is not the Red Sox fan who is always convinced that they will eventually find a way to lose. The scoffer is not even that diehard uh, pessimist that is in your life or your circle of friends who always seems to be pouring cold water on your good ideas. Scoffers are not just difficult people. Scoffers are not just annoying people, not just pessimistic people. They pose a real threat. They're capable of real danger. What the ESV translates scoffers, other translations call mockers, men of pride. The message paraphrase calls them a gang of cynics. The King James Version settles on scornful men. That comes from a Hebrew root word, which means derision. Derision is a use of ridicule to show contempt. Men of derision, the prophet Isaiah called them, do not engage usually in conversations, for the purpose of learning, because they usually believe that they are already and almost always right. They further believe that anyone who doesn't see it their way is A, wrong, and B, simple-minded. A diagnostic cue that you're dealing with someone who may be a scoffer is when he or he being unable to articulate a position or answer a probing question you may have asked, say something like, well, it's very complex. It's very complex. is a nice way of saying you wouldn't understand. Or if you're from the South, bless your heart. Proverbs 21, 24 says, scoffer is the name of the arrogant, haughty, man who acts with arrogant pride. Scoffers are brash. Scoffers are prideful. They are, they are quick to dismiss as unworthy ideas and values that are not their own. They may even hold resentment against people who have those ideas that are not consistent with their own. Scoffers fall into that proverbial category of the fool. We've gone over this already in our earlier sermons, but just to remind you, fools, a scoffer, has a high opinion of his own wisdom, a high confidence in his own abilities, has little to no use for the opinions or the abilities of others, especially if they're not used to advance his agenda or cause. Now this particular proverb, 29.8, can be interpreted a couple of different ways. First of all, the writer could have had in mind a corrupt ruler. If you're reading through the proverbs, and I hope you are, you ought to be able to read Proverbs several times by the time we get done with this series. You would note in chapter 29, there are several verses, like there are throughout, but in chapter 29 particularly, several verses that pertain to leadership. And so the original recipients of this proverb were probably leaders in training, rulers in training. And if that's the case, then, and if, and if this is the idea that a corrupt ruler is in mind with this proverb, the simple meaning of the proverb is this that people in authority who have no regard for God or God's ways are bound to do and say things that will invite trouble to their land. They're, They're going to act foolishly, and they're going to gender strife, and they're going to create enemies, and that's going to bring trouble to the land. That may come in the form, for instance, of enemies who would invade, who would attack, who would set the place on fire might even come in the form of the judgment of God, which is often portrayed in Scripture in the form of fire. God has been known to visit his judgment on a people whose hearts are turned against him and, and on leaders who have no regard for him. That is all the more reason for us as Christians to prayerfully and carefully consider participating in the selection of those who would lead us. I'm sure you've been around long enough now to know that leadership has consequences. Who we vote in has consequences for us. A second way to interpret this proverb is to see it more generally, with scoffers not necessarily being rulers, but simply being people who use their influence to gin up others with their bad behavior. In this instance, scoffers uh, are the type who raise rebellion who excite opposition to authority. The scoffer sets the city aflame when she or he creates turmoil, arouses tempers, creates divisions. One commentator describes it this way. These scorners excite the populace to acts of fury. When all respect for piety and virtue is lost, they ban the passions of the fickle people and lead them to civil discord and dangerous excesses. We just read about that in the scripture from Acts 19. This is this proverb in action. Demetrius is a silversmith, and he makes his living by making statuettes, idols. He is personally threatened by the apostle Paul and by the gospel message. If the people in the land hear the gospel message and they turn from their false gods to the living God, which had been happening, which was known to have happened, then Demetrius' sales are gonna plummet, and he's gonna be out of money. So he gathers his colleagues, and he shares that with them. He broadens his base. He appeals to their fears also, that they may lose their wealth-generating businesses. Demetrius lights the fire that will set the city ablaze. Speaking of lighting fires, Many years ago, now we used to sing a song. Some of you are going to remember this, and some of you are going to curse me for bringing it back to your memory. It's a song that is about the sharing of the love of God. It is a complete 70s tune. And I almost showed a video of it, but to be honest with you, the couple of videos that I found were so doggone distracting that I didn't think anyone would be able to worship. After they saw them, they would just be going, Oh, because it's 70s flash back. And some of you want to forget the 70s, I think. Well, contemporary Christian music wasn't all that great in the 70s, but we, we made do with what we had. And there was one song written by a guy named Kurt Kaiser called Pass it And that song, the first line, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. And soon all those around are warmed up, and it's glowing. That's how it is with God's love. Once you've experienced it, you want to sing it fresh like spring. You want to pass it on. Sounds like 70s lyrics, too, doesn't it? It only takes a spark. And now, Joyce, will be humming that all day. By the way, we had a, we had a nice crowd last time, and they did sing it. But it was my fault I started it, and they finished it. Uh, so... Pass it on, it only takes a spark to get a fire going. Now that's supposed to be a positive message, a message about how God's love can taste, how God's love can be caught, how God's love can be spread. But sometimes the spark that kindles the fire is not positive at all. Recently, tragically, a gender reveal gone awry literally proved this to be true. A spark from a smoke generating pyrotechnics device was the culprit in starting a California wildfire, a blaze that has since consumed thousands and thousands of forests uh, acres of forest, and now sadly is just one of many that are burning out there. That's the chain of events that James has in mind when he cautions us all about the power of the tongue. James 3, 5 proclaims how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is just a small, small thing, but it can do great, great damage. It only takes a spark of gossip. It only takes a tiny coal of slam. It takes just an ember of fear mongering. In Acts chapter 19, by the words of his mouth, the scoffer, Demetrius, provides that spark, the spark of conflict, and then he fans it into His true concern, we can read it in the text, is loss of revenue. But who's going to rally around him just because he stands to maybe lose his business? A couple of close friends, perhaps, but not enough to save his skin. So he puts forth a more noble cause, albeit an untrue cause, a disingenuous cause, but a more noble cause that might stand a chance of arousing the multitude. That would be the preservation of the worship of the god Artemis. Now, mind you, I don't believe for a second that Demetrius really cared about the god Artemis or his, or its worship. I think he actually had more faith in Paul and the god of Paul than he did in, in Artemis. I don't think he cared about Artemis, but I do think this. He cared how he could profit from Artemis. And so he got the people stirred up. They thought they were rioting for their religion. But in fact, they had become unwitting defenders of Demetrius' bank. They had been manipulated into doing the dirty work of the craftsman union. The scripture says the crowd created no small disturbance, which is a nice way of saying they created a riot. They're out of control. Verse 32 of Acts 19. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come People are protesting. They're not in agreement as to what they're protesting. Nor are they in agreement as to why they are protesting. And Luke notes that. I'm guessing you caught it. Most of them didn't even know why they had come together. Why is that detail in here, you think? Why do you think Luke thought it was a good idea, inspired by the Holy Spirit, to put this little detail in here? I believe it was so you and I might see the ease with within which the latent dissatisfaction that resides in humans, coupled with the rebellious bent, can be harnessed so that people will get caught up and people will get wound up and people will join a cause and people will further a cause without even really knowing what the cause is. And you see here how prone that crowd is to being manipulated and how eager to join a good row for the row's sake. Some people are just attracted by the noise. They just join in because they think it's a fun thing to do. Also note here the control that's exerted by the scoffers, by Demetrius, who set these sorts of wheels in motion, okay? The ones who arouse and create strife, the ones who use reckless speech to incite, who stoke a crowd's anger to accomplish their personal agenda. 17th century, commentator John Trapp wrote, Mocking is catching as the pestilence and no less pernicious to the whole country. I thought that was a fitting quotation for us because we're in in an age, an era of pestilence, right? What he's saying is that mocking, scoffing, is as contagious as a virus. And the story in Acts affirms this proverb to be true. Scoffers set a city aflame, right? But we don't have to look back into acts, we don't have to go back a couple thousand years in history, do we? We are seeing the truthfulness of this proverb playing out in our American streets today. Literally. In Seattle, Washington. In Portland, Oregon. Kenosha, Wisconsin, just to name a few. Places where legitimate concerns are now distorted by illegitimate behavior. And questions arise as to who is pulling the string, and to what end. Scoffers set a city ablaze. Yes, they do. Figuratively, and sometimes literally. And that's it for the first part of this proverb. There's not a lot more here, so we have to resist the temptation to make more of it than there is. These are scoffers, and this is what they do, is what we're learning. They are, as author Tim Knight puts it, agitators. They are hard-hearted agents of conflict and chaos, and they spread dissension. They purposely inflame people's passions. I suppose if there is a lesson in this short little piece, it is the same for us as it would have been for those very first priests. The proverb serves as a, a warning. Leaders in training, people who are figuring out how to be sons of the king. Are being told don't be the ruler don't be the type of person who invites calamity and godless word with your godless words and actions so Christian for us just don't be a scoffer the proverb also serves as instruction It teaches us to be ready, to be on guard, and not to be surprised. This is what scornful men do. This is what you can expect scoffers to do. They've been doing it throughout the ages. So don't get caught up in their manipulation. Don't play that game. The latter part, I think, is very important for us. Because, listen, scoffers use derision to cause division. Scoffers use derision to cause division. But as Christians, we are called to be ambassador of reconciliation. We serve the Prince of Peace. We function at his command. And we are to be peacemakers. I think the caution here, maybe this is a little bit of a side road off the proverb, we'll close with this. But I, I think it's quite rele- relevant, or I wouldn't bring it up. I think it's It's easy for you or I, maybe easier than we'd like to admit, to allow derision to creep into our lives, to drop our guard, to begin to view different people who have different ideas with contempt, or worse, to begin to see them as enemies. And it's not like we haven't read Ephesians 6. It's not like we don't know that we wrestle not against flesh and blood still can make people our enemies? And if you're not tracking with me right now, you're going, no, I don't think so. I don't think that happens, not to me. Well, first of all, I hope you're right. But I want to ask you to think just about a couple of things and how these things maybe have been impacting your heart and mind. What these things have done to your attitude. I'd like you to think first, pandemic. How has a pandemic impacted your heart, your mind? What has it done? your attitude. That's some of you, I think, probably doing swimmingly. Not, Not most. And if you still are a little resistant to the idea that maybe, maybe this pandemic pressure is causing you to be a little off, let me ask you, how many times in the last week have you used the word stupid? As in, well, that's stupid. Well, this is stupid. Well, this law is dumb, and this mandate, I don't get. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. This suggestion, and then dumb tape on the line, and the plexiglass, and then what do I do, and when do I do? This is stupid. Okay, now we're tracking. Now we're seeing that maybe, you see, when you and I make that judgment, we've actually put ourselves in a position of starting to think about people who think differently than us with the region. Let me me bring up something else. Uh, Just food for thought. What do you think of when you think election year? I mean, come on. Don't tell me that you're not driving down the road, you look over on your neighbor's lawn, they've got the sign out for the candidate that you hate and you go, I cannot believe this. I just can't believe anybody's going to vote for that moron. On the other side, there's another lawn with the exact opposite side, and somebody else is coming down the road, and they're saying the same thing. I cannot believe this. How many times recently have you listened to a political ad? If you even if, even watch them, Right, I literally switch them off every time they come. I don't care who it's for. I'm just so tired of it. But in all honesty, if I should stumble and forget or lose my place and listen to one, it agitates me. Especially if it's somebody who's espousing something that I cannot believe in, I I do not value, I do not like, I get angry. And I, I I say things, I say them out loud. To the TV, which isn't a good sign of mental health. This stuff riles you up, but you know what? We do know this, right? It's supposed to. You understand it's designed to. Do you know that somebody's done a very careful study of the market? And they know which button to push, And we're just willing to be pushed because we're not thinking it all the way through. Think also about the, the course of our nation. How many of us are satisfied with the direction? that we're going in. And how easy it is for us to point fingers and cast blame and and get overwhelmed and get frustrated and again set ourselves up in opposition. Not that we aren't in some ways in opposition. I'm going to get to that in a second. But the heart attitude, the hardening of the heart, the building up of the walls are these Christian values. You and I are called to some greater purpose than that's all. We're just called to, to be salt and light. We are called to be in this world, but not of this world. We are called to be holy. And literally, to be holy means to be set apart. It doesn't mean, uh, like some of us think, Oh, I can never be just perfect and all, but... No, it's, it means set apart from something, the world, for something, God. So we aren't really above this fray, but we should be to the side of it, don't you think? As Christian, if we're to do our job, which is proclaiming the gospel, m- making Jesus known, showing love, that's we need to be aside, we need to be apart from that kind of thing. You don't have to be a rioter. At least this is what I've come to studying this past. You don't have to be a rioter or a le- looter to be a scholar easier than we think to have scoffing heart and to get caught up in the throes, to be swept up in the waves of scoffers and scoffing. Now, I want to leave you this morning with a rather lengthy conclusion, which I say you can call a lengthy conclusion or a brief article, whichever one you want. I normally would quote a part of an article or a quotation. It's something that's particularly fitting. And I've come across this writing, I think it was published last week. And it's so good. And the guy just says, says things so much better than I would be able to. So I thought, you know what? I'm just going to read it. It's, it's not that long, but it's longer than a normal conclusion. So whatever you have to do to hold in here for like another minute and a half, whether that's close your eyes or keep them wide open, whatever you need to do, I want to read this article to you. And this is written by a guy named Cap Stewart. And the title of the article is If you're fighting the culture war, you're losing. If you're fighting the culture war, you're losing. He writes, a new Christian consortium dedicated to preserving religious liberty is promoting its mission with militaristic imagery and language. The group's website uses terms like battle, fighters, and war. It's clear the founders of this organization see themselves as being on the front lines of the conflict for the soul of our nation. They are proud participants in the ongoing culture war. To some, this approach may seem legitimate. After all, in the struggle for dominance between polarized groups, only one side can emerge victoriously, and it isn't the side that refuses to fight. The question we must ask is this. Is a warlike posture the proper response to an increasingly anti-Christian society? Does such an approach represent the wisdom that comes down from above or the wisdom that is earthly? unspiritual and demonic. Some might well ask, but well, shouldn't we oppose the evils being spread in our society? The answer is a resounding yes. Engaging with and even confronting our culture is a legitimate form of being salt and light in the world. Again, the deciding factor is the nature of our engagement. Are we seeking to destroy or to rescue our opponents? When we correct or oppose or reprove, is it with the goal of winning the conversation or winning a neighbor? Do we confront others in the right spirit? In the words of Jonathan Edwards, do we engage one who opposes us without angry reflections or contemptuous language and as seeking his good rather than his hurt and more to deliver him from the calamity into which he has fallen than to be even with him for the injury he has As these words suggest, we are not at war with our ideological opponents. We are at war for them. To engage with our culture in a militant and hostile manner is to forsake our role as ambassadors. It's trading our diplomatic visas for military dog tags. It's trading the armor of God for the fig leaves of human striving. It's capitulation to earthly wisdom attempting to fight for the kingdom of God on the world's terms. Throughout human history, Christians have displayed valiant love in the face of overwhelming opposition. That's why the Apostle Paul was able to address a crowd who had just tried to kill him as brothers and fathers. That's why Maria Goretti was able to speak these words shortly before dying from the wounds of her attacker, I want him with me in heaven forever. That's why the newly converted Ed Johnson was able to say, before being lynched by a mob, hung from a bridge, Chattanooga, Tennessee. God bless you all. That is how Christians are called to battle. Not to fight fire with fire, at least not how that phrase is normally understood. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him the truth. It's counterintuitive as it may seem, the fire of human hatred can only be overcome by the spark of divine love. The unassuming meekness of this love may appear weak and ineffectual, but it generates a supernatural yield more powerful than any earthly weapon. Weak and weak. Too often, when push comes, shove, follow. Too often, when the culture opposes us, we feel like equal opposition is the only answer. But the second greatest commandment reminds us that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves. And the parable of the Good Samaritan reminds us that our neighbor is any person we come into contact with, including those who insult and threaten us. By divine decree, everyone is our neighbor, no exceptions. And we win our neighbors through the same love that won us. I want to dismiss you this morning. Instead of a prayer with a traditional benediction from the book of Jude, and in the end of the book of Jude, one little chapter that it is, he confronts and allays, I think, some of the fears of his readers, because scoffers had come among them. And he reminded them, listen, this has been predicted. The apostle said it would happen. Scoffers would come among them. Men devoid of the spirit, worldly, causing divisions. This is going to happen. And so they must have been asking, well, what do we do and how do we live? These words encourage them, and I pray they would encourage you. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the blood. Lord bless you guys. Have a great week.